from the very beginning of their relationship, God had called Abram to a life of trusting him one step at a time. From the very beginning of their relationship, the relationship between Abram and God, Abraham would eventually become Abraham, and Sarai would eventually become Sarah. But, but at this point, it's Abram. And from the very beginning of their relationship, God had called Abram to a life of trusting God that was a one-step-at-a-time relationship. Turn to Genesis 12, if you would, with me. And we'll jump in there to help set the stage for what this one step at a time relationship looked like. Look at Genesis 12:1. Just the first three verses there. God said to Abram, this is the very beginning of their relationship, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Look at the language there. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. In other words, leave your family and everything you know. And then look at this verse one, go from there to the land that I will show you. Now notice here at this point that God didn't tell Abram hardly a thing. He knew nothing. Abram knew nothing about where he was going. He had no idea where he was headed. He didn't know what the weather would be like. He didn't even have the chance to look up and make sure they had good schools, you know, enough decent restaurants to go to. Didn't know where the good coffee shops were. I mean, those are things you got to know before you go to a new place, right? Abram knew nothing. He's going in blind on this. So basically at this point, God simply says, leave what you know And go to what you don't know. Pack up and just let's start moving, Abram. Just start moving. Take your whole family and let's go. (laughs) So God was calling Abram from the very beginning of their relationship, if you'll notice, to a life of trusting him a step at a time. (laughs) There's a lot there, isn't there? Boy, if we only had that kind of relationship with God. (laughs) A step at a time sounds uncomfortable to most of us if we're being real. We want to know step after step after step. And, and we're only going to the next step until we know the fourth or fifth or sixth step, right? Like, am I preaching yet or am I preaching? This is how we live. This is how we control the world around us. Abram at this point doesn't even know where he's headed. He just knows that God was directing him. Abram's directions were being given to him on sort of a need-to-know basis. So, so pack up and get moving, Abram. Verses 1 and 2. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And if you do that, look at verse 2. If you do that, God promises this. I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation, which is a promise of both land and people. You don't have a nation unless you have land. You don't have a nation unless you have people. You need both of those to have a nation. And he says, I will make of you a great nation if you will follow me. I will bless you and make your name great so that, it says, you will be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing in keeping with God's purposes in creation. Then verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And listen to this. This is big. In you, God speaking to Abram, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What? All the families in the earth are going to be blessed through my lineage. Coming from an all-powerful God who made the entire universe, that's a pretty big promise, right? 
I mean, like that's a pretty serious promise. So at this point, Abram knows big things are in store. God has promised me like big time promise. But here's the problem. And it's the tension in our text of Genesis 16.1. Sometimes I have to stand up here and tell you what the tension is and build it up and draw it out before we even get to the text. But, but the text is the tension. Look at verse 1 in chapter 16. After all this promise, all-powerful God of the universe, Abram, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. <laughs> Look at 16.1. Little problem here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Abram is 85 years old. His wife, Sarai, is no spring chicken. She is barren, way past able to have a baby. And listen, at this point, after hearing this amazing promise from God that he's going to bless the whole world through your lineage, and you're 85, and your wife is likewise barren and old, and she's sitting there going, I am sick and tired of waiting for this baby, Abram. Where is this baby that God promised? My biological click is tick, clock is ticking, and, and I've been waiting for 10 years after this promise was made, and ain't nothing happening. Here's the thing, craziest thing. Actually, we went into our um, video footage files here at church, and we found actual video footage of, uh, of Abram's wife, Sarai, uh, who was very upset about this taking so long. Let's, let's see if you can... Recognize this. <laughs> okay. Full disclosure, that wasn't actually Abram and Sarai. Uh, in case you don't know, that was uh, an early 90s movie called My Cousin Vinny. Uh, that was Vin- Vincent LaGuardia Gambini, and his girlfriend, Mona Lisa Vito, was her name. Uh, she was the one there who was the stand-in for Sarai in uh, Genesis 16. Now, of course, in Cousin Vinny, she's still waiting to get married. Uh, but I- as you can see, there, her biological clock is ticking. She's like, this should be happening by now, but it's not. So she's waiting on a child that, that just doesn't seem to come here. Like, where is this baby that's promised where is the baby that's been promised to me here so what do they do what do they do by all human calculations it's not going to happen through them right how, how, how do you fix barrenness when they didn't have the technology we have today look at verse one now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Verse 2, And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. This is where we begin to see ourselves in Abram and Sarai, the manipulation and control. If God isn't going to deliver, it's time for us to take matters into our own hands, right? So, by the way, if you're wondering what go into the servant means, you can ask your parents. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, can you believe this is their tactic? This is, this is a good way to, to fix this, they think. Now, it sounds terribly strange to us uh, and, and quite immoral, 
and an altogether terrible idea uh, for Sarai to suggest this, (laughs) which it was. Uh, But this was, in that day, a pretty common and legal and, in fact, encouraged practice. In ancient Near Eastern society, it was a legal custom for a barren woman to give her maidservant to her husband so that the maidservant can act as a surrogate for her if she was barren. In fact, legally, the child born from that union would be considered the first wife's child. As in, a child born to Hagar would have full legal rights as an heir to Abram's estate. A full son or daughter in Abram's lineage. But notice, it's not just Sarai. Hagar is also, I'm sorry, uh, Abram is also complicit in this scheme here. Keep reading here. It says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram listened to Sarai instead of God. The Hebrew word used here for listened is the same exact word that is used for obey. The text most literally reads, Abram obeyed the voice of of Sarai. This is a replay of Adam and Eve in the garden, by the way. Uh, the implication here is that Abram not only didn't have to listen to her, but also that in listening to her, he was turning a deaf ear to God's promises and disobeying God's one at a step as you need it, as you're ready, as you're learning, as you're possibly going to hear what I have for you to learn right now before you take the next step. Plan. There are hyphens and all that, by the way. So Abram listened to the voice of Sarai instead of God. Verse 3. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So the plan, at least biologically, worked, uh, but there were spiritual consequences here, which is... Which is to say, friends, not trusting in God's ways, even if there are practical ways in which we think that they they work, like this worked for them biologically, not trusting in God's ways always has consequences in our relationship with Him and with others. And the consequences are what we begin to see here in the text. The manipulation and the control of the circumstances of the people around us, I mean, listen, let's just keep reading here. Tell me the next few verses don't sound like every marriage in history, right? Listen to this. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, and Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. She's talking to Abram now. May the wrong done to me be on to you. Abram feels like every husband has felt a few times here and there, right? Like, wait, 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 wait. How, How did I get to be the bad guy here? I mean, there, there are always things we've done wrong, right, men, that we don't even know about. Are we preaching yet? <laughs> Actually, all the women are like, no, really, that's true. They don't even know what they're doing wrong, and I'm here to tell them. <laughs> right? May the wrong be done to me, verse 5, be done to you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the, listen to this. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai's like, it's your fault for listening to me. 
how did I get here, Abram feels like. Like, how did I get here? We know how he got there. Wimpiness. Keep reading. Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Shifting blame when he knows full well he shouldn't have listened to her in the first place. And she also knows it and uses it against him. And there's all this web of, of people control, manipulation, and relational sort of he said, she said, and blame shifting that goes on here. This is the result of what happens when we bypass the way of God for our ways. I mean, it may, may work practically in some biological terms like here, but there are always going to be consequences in going against God's ways for our lives. Like this, verse 6. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, that is, Hagar, and she fled from her. Hagar gets, gets the brunt of it. Listen, friends, when, uh, when Abram and Sarai become impatient with God's ways and God's timing, and they turn to something as drastic as this, it's not a whole lot different than us, honestly. Friends, here's some truth. Just because the promises of God may look and feel impossible or take longer than hoped is never a valid justification for going with the world's ways or our ways as a short circuit to God's ways. Just because the promises of God and his provision may look different or take longer or feel impossible. That is never a justification for going with the world's ways or our ways as a way of short-circuiting God's ways. And listen, when we trust in our ability, our personal control, our ability to manipulate the world around us or the families around us, the relationships around us in ways that are contrary to God's ways, the damage is felt by those who are actually closest to us. I I can be in a fight with my wife. And by the way, for the record, this primarily consists of me very calmly saying things like, no, really, honey, you, you go first. Not really. We can be in a fight, and I am instant, like instantly, I am in manipulation, or blame shifting, or may the Lord judge between you and me. Like 30 seconds into a disagreement, I forget why we got there in the first place. Those of you who aren't married, this is true, I know it sounds crazy, but we can, we can be fighting, and there have been times we both literally cannot remember why we started in the first place. Let me tell you why we started and why I, I so quickly get to invoking the wrath of God on my own spouse. It isn't so much because she did something wrong to me. That's really, honestly, almost never the case. <laughs> ha. Did you get that on record? Why I so quickly get to invoking the wrath of God on those closest to me is because more than I care to admit, it's because I ultimately ultimately don't trust God's promises to me to lead me and keep me safe. 
and take me where he wants me to go. Now, some of you are sitting there. Now, wait, Scott. You're proposing that when I'm arguing with my spouse or I have a disagreement in a relationship and we're getting to that blame-shifting sort of wrath of God on somebody else kind of thing, it's ultimately because I'm not trusting that God's going to lead me and keep me safe? That's exactly what I'm suggesting. Yes. Personal control can very easily be a form of distrust in God's ways and trust in our ways or in the world's ways. We don't like to admit that out loud, but it's true. For most of us, personal control is a form of distrust in the way that God says we were created and how we flourish and how we we learn contentment and what joy really looks like. I mean, for me, seriously, if somebody's looking at my behavior on the outside... (laughs) and they said, you'll know the root by the fruit of Scott's life, they would see a heart that's shaped like an Oreo, people. (laughs) I mean, it sounds silly, but it's true. I know that for me, when I'm cornered in life, I worry, and I, I worry. I run through all the scenarios, people. I know I've got some other worry words out there like me. When I'm cornered in life, I worry, I overwork, I overeat, and I manipulate the people and circumstances around me, which is because sometimes I really believe that God cannot or he will not lead me. And I don't trust that he's going to keep me safe. And so I have a very palpable sense. I've got to control myself. I've got to rely on myself. Like if I don't get that Oreo or that donut, I'm not going to enjoy life. I know that sounds silly. Let me say it this way. Why don't, I, why don't I feel that way about eating a salad? I mean, we all know. Any fifth grade science experiment can tell you. Salad is actually better for me than Oreos. And actually helps my body. And renews me for kingdom work. When worry, fretting, overworking, donuts, don't help me. (laughs) Now I get it. I understand why some of us have a a very palpable sense of I've, I've got to be in personal control. It's because we've got hurts from our past. You live long enough, you're going to have real trauma in your life. Some of which is there you don't even know about. And, and often today's discontent is rooted in a fear of, of future insecurities or hurts that are based on past insecurities and hurts. And I get it. That's not untrue. It's true. You've, you've been hurt. You've been burned. No one was there to help. And you had a a sense, I've got to fend for myself. You know, sometimes for me, the worst Oreo eating binges, and I admitted to you last week on record, I think, I ate six or seven double stuffed Oreos in a row 
not this past Friday, but the Friday before. My, my Oreo eating binges are when I am sure that nobody loves me, that I don't do a good job, that everything around me is crumbling, that I can't possibly do what God's called me to do. When I get in this place of, of, of feeling cornered in life and frustrated and nothing's going right, I go to food. Because I, I don't trust enough that God's got me where he wants me to be going. So, so how do we learn to trust God? How do we learn to continue to say yes to that one step at a time he's got for us? Because listen, most of us would really rather have six or seven. Then we'll take the next one. That's the reality of where most of us are in life. But the reality about life is you never hardly know what step two is past step one. How do we learn to trust God? Here at FCC, we have nine answers to those questions. We call them the nine habits. We actually believe that you become what you repeatedly do in life. And we are, if we're followers of Jesus, we're in the Romans 12 process of renewing our hearts, reshaping our hearts and minds around the truth of God. And we believe that if we give ourselves to practices like this, we will learn to trust God. For example, engage in worship. If you're not really regular in engaging with God in worship, then you're missing out on hearing about the provision of God in the life of his people from the church history of people like Abram and Sarai to now. If you're hearing that week in and week out, the provision of God and the promises of God coming up to you today because you're in worship, you're going to learn to trust God more. That's just, that's just how it works. I, mean, I could go through every single one of this, this list. We become people who learn to trust God as we give ourselves to practices that form in us behaviors that show that we really actually believe that God's doing what He says He can do. Engage in worship. Serve in a team, connect in a life group. Pursue generosity, pray and study your Bible, do a project together. Identify with Christ in baptism, commit to the church as a member, tell the story. If, if those kinds of things become habits in your life as an individual, you will continue to become someone who trusts God more than you have. So, Because as we give ourselves to these practices of godliness, we will learn to trust His ways and His timing. As we give ourselves to these practices of godliness, we will learn to trust His ways and His timing. Because you see, friends, we've learned, we've learned to manipulate and to twist based on what we've learned in the world and what we thought helped us in the past. And so we have to actually unlearn. We have to unlearn worldly practices that don't actually help trust in God to happen, but that help trust in me to happen well. We have to unlearn the world's ways and relearn with each day God's ways. And listen, God's ways can do things like make an old barren woman pregnant. So let me just suggest this week of those nine habits, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, ninehabits.org, grab one of those invite cards. They're on the back of that. Look in the bulletin. Pick one habit, just, just one. You don't have to do them all at the same time, but pick one that will help you most in learning how to trust God. 
Maybe, maybe your engagement with the Word of God, Scripture from day to day, isn't what it needs to be. Getting, getting the truth of God in you will continue to form in you the kind of thoughts and habits of heart and mind with prayer and word that will reshape the things that you believe that are lies. You'll learn to trust God if you pick, pray, and study your Bible and engage in that habit this week. Try Him. Try Him. If He can make an old, barren woman pregnant, <laughs> He can help you become someone who trusts in the provision of God instead of yourself. That's what this is. That's what the Christian life is. Doesn't matter if you've known Jesus as long as as you can remember in your 70s or 80s, or if you've hardly known him, or you don't even yet know him. The Christian life is growing in understanding that God alone will provide in all the ways that you really actually need. I know that because we're here to worship a God who sent a Savior, who proved in Jesus that we have all the provision we ever need. Let's pray, friends.